the text, or we'll get into the sermon. So, John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, oh, we pray for your understanding and your insight as we get into your word here, specifically this gospel of John, which um, of all the gospels gives us the beautiful and distinct view of Jesus as God, our great Savior, the God-man. And I pray, Lord, as we study these truths here in this gospel, that we would be, uh, we would be overwhelmed with the reality of who you are, that we would be captivated in our thinking and in our worship, knowing that you, the great God of the universe, has seen fit to condescend and become a part of your creation, that you might save the sinful rebels who have tainted your creation. Lord, when we think about the heights, the glories that are in you, it should cause us to be extremely humble. And I pray that that's exactly where we would end up humble before you, worshiping you in praise and giving you all the glory and honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The Gospel of John is no small book. In the study of the New Testament, it exists separately and singularly. There is a Johnine theology, supposedly, that exists throughout the Gospel of John, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And indeed, there is many similarities between those particular books of the New Testament, um, but it would be mistaken to think that they exist in and of themselves, compartmentalized from the rest of the New Testament. In fact, John most likely was the very last of the Gospels that was written. There is some ideas out there in textual critical circles that will give the priority of writing to Mark first and then Matthew and then Luke and then finally comes the Gospel of John. And I guess there is a sense where you can look at those books and see a upward progression of style and thought and thinking and theology. But if you think or have any idea that somehow theology developed over the course of the first hundred years of the church so that the reason why John exists here at the end was to make sure that we got the high Christology that was somehow overlooked or missed by Mark or a Matthew, which is the view that a lot of modern textual critics hold, like Bart Ehrman and such, then you would be sorely mistaken. 
If you read those other Gospels, and we've gone through Matthew as a church, we've gone through Mark as a church, and in those we see a magnificently high Christology as well. Granted, the focus might not be as much on Christ and him being deity come down into flesh as much as it is fleshed out, I guess, to use a pun, um, as it is here in the Gospel of John. But it certainly is there and not to be missed. But in the Gospel of John, what we find is the, a departure from the three earlier synoptic Gospels, which means that John probably had a good handle and a good understanding of those particular books, not just because he'd lived through all the events, but probably having read them somewhere along the line himself. We know that he was the last of the apostles that was left alive. And if you read a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I would highly recommend to you to read and to get a handle on exactly how much martyrdom has gone on in church history, you'll find that he records the death of most of the apostles and John comes very late. In fact, they apparently attempted to kill him And he didn't die when they tried to execute him. And thus they banished him to the island of Patmos. And of course, you know the book of Revelation and that it was written by John in exile there on that island after his attempted martyrdom. So John lived a very long time, well into the 90s. This, some gospel account or some Critical accounts say that John was probably written in the early 90s, 92, 93, 94 AD, that particular time period. Whether that's true or not, we don't completely know, but we certainly do know that we find fragments of John very, 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 very early on. Some of the most well-attested manuscripts come from the Gospel of John, and it's one of the reasons we're going to get into, let me back up a second, where you hear me talking a lot about textual issues. There are several textual issues that are going to come up in the book of John, and I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to talk about them plainly, baldly. I'm not going to try to tap dance around certain textual difficulties that come up in the book of John, but I want you to be aware of them because a lot of times what's happened, especially in a more modern day, as new manuscripts have been discovered, people have been shaken in their faith because all of a sudden, well, wait a second, my King James Bible doesn't say thus and so, and my King James Bible was good enough for grandma, grandpa, great grandpa, and now this is different. Well, my faith is suddenly shaken and I certainly don't want you to have a faith in a one particular text of an English translation and you're shaken as soon as you find something that might cause you somehow some kind of uncertainty. So when we talk about textual critical issues like I already have been since we started, I'm doing so to upfront tell you here's what we have in terms of the text of scripture and here's how we can confidently say we know this is the gospel of John we know what we have in front of us is the word of God and we know that as we study this and as we go through it line upon line as we study it word upon word phrase upon phrase as the bible puts it precept upon precept what we're going to find Lord willing, is that we will have our faith bolstered and strengthened as we study this particular epistle. For me, I I don't 
necessarily have a particular favorite book of the Bible, but I do have a favorite gospel, and it's the Gospel of John. Um, I find as I read the Gospel of John that it, it, for me, is the one that I keep coming back to over and over and over. I hope that doesn't taint, or if it does taint it, positively in light of how I preach these particular sermons and that my passion will come out for this work. But needless to say, all of that is getting to the point that there's a reason why John differs so vastly from the other three gospel accounts. And we call those three other Gospels, of course, the synoptic Gospels. This particular Gospel here in the Gospel of John differs in that John is beginning to encounter some pushback against Christianity and some infiltration into Christianity that he is directly addressing. Now, we might call that proto-Gnosticism. What in the world is that? Well... Proto-Gnosticism, of course, the phrase proto means before or in head of Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes into its own much later on, second, third century. It really starts becoming its own. And what it is was a movement within some parts of Christianity to say things like, well, belief in all that is well and good, but there's some secret, some hidden wisdom that you need to start understanding and learning. Jesus was good and all, but he left some secret, hidden stuff that you need to study into. And of course, that's attractive, right? You want to know as much as you can about Jesus. Was there some secret teachings? Was there some secret little, ooh, I want to know about that. You know, I... I I've seen many people over the years be caught up with books like the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Peter. Or you you remember there was that time where, you know, the Gospel of Thomas was really big. And these Gospels came about much later on and they were written. And if you read them, they're, they're honestly, frankly, really weird. You know, they're just really, really weird stuff. Um, You have things in the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus, as a little boy, heals some bird. And you're like, oh, that's so, oh, that just warms my heart. You know, little Jesus just, it's not in the Bible, but he's just healing animals. Or You have that passage where, you know, Peter asks about a woman who comes to see Jesus, if Jesus would turn her into a man, you know, so that she could have full access to all of the truths of Jesus or have access into the kingdom. And he basically says, I was just summing up, don't worry, when she's in heaven, she'll get there. You follow those lines, right? Super weird stuff. And those Gnostic gospels are full of all that kind of weirdness. They just don't, they don't read like the rest of the gospels. They don't read like the rest of the Bible. They're just kind of bizarre. So don't be tripped up or think, well, what about the hidden years of Jesus when he was between 12 and 30? And did he go off into India and learn some of these Hindu mystic things like some people think? It's crazy. It's the no, of course not. The word of God is quite clear and quite understandable. We have everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. We don't need speculation from the second and third century by some weird Gnostic mystics to give us the hidden information about Jesus. We have everything here and we can be quite confident about it. So John is countering some of these truths coming in. 
And the big major one, the reason why the Gospel of John has such an amazing high Christology, which when we get into the text is what we're going to find right away. And it's one of the reasons why I'm going to have a hard time getting through five verses. Because when we start getting into the Godhead, and when we start getting into the magnificence and grandeur of our God, it, it's, it's easy to get bogged down and right to, I think, because big God is what we want to have. And John gives us big God in the person of Jesus Christ. He gives us this big God because the Gnostic idea of Jesus was something more along the lines of he wasn't completely human. He was a spirit. And he didn't cast a shadow sometimes. He wouldn't leave footsteps as he walked sometimes. You find in these certain areas, he, he did things that were just odd and weird. He used that palely glowy, uh, ghostly Jesus kind of idea. And John is writing to counter that kind of stuff. He's writing to show that Jesus is completely and totally God, but he's also radically human. And his whole goal is to give us this big, huge, high God, 100% God, and 100% man. And so as we go through these Gospels, what we find, pardon me, this Gospel, what we find is John continually coming back to the fact that Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is Jehovah God. Jesus is the God who created everything, who flung everything into existence, and everything continues to exist by his word and by his power. Now, some people, like I've said, will say, well, this had to develop later on because we just don't see the same kind of thing in the Synoptic Gospels. Well, again, we do, but we do find John writing in a higher way because he was addressing particular issues. And so what I hope, my goal in going through the Gospel of John is similar to my goal in us going through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written by probably the Apostle Paul, or maybe Paul preached it and Luke wrote it down. One of those two things is where I kind of sit there, which is neither here nor there. But the whole point of the book of Hebrews was that the writer of the Hebrews was showing you that Jesus Christ is greater than anything else that exists. So for you Hebrew Christians who are in Rome, who are suffering persecution, who are thinking this persecution's too hard, I'm flirting with going back into Judaism because frankly life was easier there. You don't have anything better to go back to. What you have to go back to is actually going to leave you in a worse state. Yeah, life might be a little bit easier and you might be a little, under a little less persecution, but your soul will be damned. Which is why all of those warnings exist in the book of Hebrews. Over and over and over we have these warnings. Don't neglect so great a salvation that you have. If you do, what hope are you going to have otherwise? John is very similar. John writes in a secular, secular, secular pattern. He does it in both his epistles, pardon me, all three of his epistles, and in the book of Revelation as well. And here is no different. While there is a linear progression of Jesus getting older and acting, there is a cycle in thought, and Jesus is keep being brought back to the fact he's God. 
There are seven I am statements, or maybe eight, depending upon how you count it, throughout the Gospel of John. And those come at particular periods of point, and those points are designed to point you, the reader, you, the hearer, you, the listener, back to the fact Jesus is God. When Moses encountered God there in the burning bush, and he comes up and he sees this marvelous thing taking place, and he walks over to it, and God speaks from the burning bush, take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. And Moses takes off his sandals and bows down there before the bush, and he asks who this voice is speaking from the bush. God responds back to him and says, I am that I am. God is the eternal, always existent one. God is perfect aseity. It's a big fancy word. We're going to get a lot of big fancy words as we study. And that's good. And I want you to wrestle with these words. I'm not content to just leave you where you're at. Come along. Come along with me, beloved. Aseity. What it means is that God completely exists in and of himself. And he has nothing else that he requires in order for him to continue to exist. That's a logical understanding, but it's very hard to actually comprehend once you start thinking about it. Consider, you sit right now on a pew. You breathe air. Your blood pumps. You drink water or perhaps coffee or whatever it is. And you eat food. And all of these things you need in order to continue your sustenance, in order to continue for you to live. You are dependent upon all manner of things in order to exist. Psychology and science has shown us that we need relationships even to exist. If a baby is left completely to its own, it will die of neglect. We need all kinds of things in order for us to live and in order for us to continue. We don't understand what it means to be a seity. We don't understand what it means to have absolutely no thing that we require for our continued existence. Yet that's what God is. God is perfect a seity. He didn't create because he had some desperate need. He didn't create because he needed to be loved. He had a perfect love relationship within the bounds of the Trinity. Always giving love and always receiving love within those three members of the Trinity. It was a perfect love relationship and is still a perfect love relationship. God didn't need time when he created time in order to exist. He completely is existing outside of time and has no need for a continued existence. He has always existed, the eternal now, and will always exist. He didn't need space because he exists outside of the realm of space and creation. He didn't need anything that exists. He didn't need anything. He chose to do it purely for his own sake, for his own glory, that he might just simply do. He doesn't require anything in order to exist. That's a big God. And this perfectly, absolute, big God is the God that John brings us to every time he comes back to that phrase, I am. And he's pointing out to us that Jesus is the I am. Jesus is God. Jesus is 
Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. However you want to phrase it. However you want to parse that out. And he gives us this absolutely amazing, big, grand God. And yet this big, grand God condescends and takes on a human nature, enter into his own creation, experiences time, he experiences food, he experiences breath, he experiences pain, he experiences suffering, all in a manner that is perfectly and consistently human, while at the very same time still being completely simple and impassable in his aseity. And if you don't know what those terms mean, we'll get there. Simple means that all of his parts are consistent with all of his other parts. His love is his mercy, is his judgment, is his omniscience, is his omnipresence. They're all the same. You cannot divide them from one another. To think about them, logically, certainly we do. But in his existence, they are not separated or separatable one from another. His impassibility, he does not have passions and emotions and desires like we do. We have to anthropomorphize God. Do you know what that means? It means we ascribe human attributes to God to try to understand and define him. The good news is the Bible does that too. The Bible tells us God has eyes and eyelashes and hands and ears and a mouth. You see, when we know from the Gospel of John, we'll get to chapter 4, Jesus said God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when we anthropomorphize God, it kind of helps us understand a little bit more about God, but at the same time, it's just not quite accurate itself either. There's really no way to describe so many things about God. And when we start to press those things, those anthropomorphic tendencies to understand God, we come up with error. So we want to do the best we can, but yet maintain God's bigness and his grandeur, which is why the incarnation of Jesus Christ is so huge. Because Jesus said in John chapter 14, and we'll get there, might take years, but we're going to get there. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what Jesus meant by that was that if the Father in the Trinity had been the one to come down and take upon human flesh in order to redeem his elect people from mankind, it would have been exactly the same. Jesus didn't do things a little different and he didn't fudge things a little here, a little there. Jesus did exactly what the Father would have done and did do. In that, we find in John chapter 5, Jesus says, I only do those things that the Father wants me to do. So Johnine theology, Johnine Christology is very big and very high and very vast. And I hope that you aren't dissuaded by that. Instead, I hope you are compelled by that. Because our God is a big, awesome, fiery God, right? Hebrews chapter 12, we worship with fear and awe or fear and reverence because our God is a consuming fire. God should be so much bigger than we can possibly understand or think that it puts us at the place like Job is when he puts his hand over his mouth and said, I spoke about things 
that I had no understanding of. Right? One of the reasons why I'm compelled to go through the Gospel of John is because it is a counter to, a counterweight to the regular, run-of-the-mill, evangelical, Jesus is going to help you hit more home runs. Or Jesus is going to help you with your finances. Or Jesus is going to help you with your, your, your hey, hey, it's the new year, right? You a new year, new you. Hey, Jesus is here to help you become a better you. And I hope that this is a counter to the kind of self-help kind of Christianity, the moralistic therapeutic deism that exists in so many of the churches in our day and age. This big God, big Jesus study of the Gospel of John is a counter to that. I firmly believe that the greater vision you have of God, the more inferior those issues become, and the more greatly I see myself in light of God, I'm just going to become a holier person in light of knowing him better and loving him more, right? That's what 1 John chapter 3 says. It says that we don't know what we're going to be like, but we know that when we see him, we'll become like him even as he is. And everyone who has that hope purifies himself even as he is pure. The greater we see of God, the more we long for that beatific vision, meaning that we see the glory of God, the greater it's going to promote holiness within us. So I think that a sermon on six sermons on how to have better finances throughout the year 2020 or whatever it could be, how to, how to discipline your kids through the next 30 days, or, you know, I don't know. There's all kinds of little things that people do, sermons, that I, I think that this big God is going to correct our desire for the here and now kind of things, but it's also going to inform our understanding of God in such a way that those kind of things are going to come more naturally. Or maybe a better way to say it is supernaturally. The greater we see of God, the more we rest and rely upon him and we grow in him. So that's my introduction to the book of John. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. First of all, it's obviously no mistake that John begins with the very same words of the book of Genesis. He is intending right from the get-go to communicate several important truths. Number one is the pre-existence of Christ. That's the very first thing that I want to point us out or point out to us is that Christ pre-existed creation. In the beginning, meaning when the beginning happened, Christ was already in existence. Our English translations do a little bit of a disservice here, but it's very hard to say it the way John is getting at here. Meaning, the beginning happened, and as the beginning happened, Jesus, the Word, was already there and already in existence. Jesus had a pre-existent Trinitarian relationship with the Father and with the Son. We can't escape that. Jesus says in John chapter 17, as he's praying to the Father, Father, give me the glory that I had with you before 
And he's talking about not just before his incarnation, but even before time even began or before the beginning. One of the things that many passages or many cults, I should say, would do is they'll take this passage and they'll say, well, the word wasn't God, the word was a God. But what I want to point out before I even get to that particular phrase is two things. One, don't use this when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't use John 1.1. They have all of their things preset and it's just like a slot machine. You put your quarter in, you pull the handle, you're gonna get nonsense and nothing in return. Okay? There's plenty of other places to go to prove that Jesus was God besides John 1.1. But the second thing I want to point out is for us as believers, we clearly see the identification of the word being God. And here for us, this is food for our faith. And it's vital for our faith. Because the word was not just with God, but the word was God. Meaning that God exists as a singular. I am the Lord. I am Lord your God. I am one. But also, there is a relationship within this oneness. Jesus here in the very beginning says, In the beginning, before creation began, before anything began, the word The word was with God. The word had relationship with God. The word was in communion with God. The word had friendship with God. Whatever phraseology we want to use. And that word also was God. Trinitarian language did not come as a result of the Nicene Council. Okay? Now, granted, the first 200 years of church history were filled with persecution. And there's a reason why it doesn't happen until the late 300s, 400s. We have the Council of Nicaea, we have Chalcedon, we have Orange. We have some of these early church councils that all of a sudden are giving us these wonderful and high Christological um, confessions of the faith. And people will scratch their head and go, yeah, well, those are the 300s. That's when, you know, we're trying to Christianize the empire. No, there is a benefit to having had persecution stop. But it doesn't mean that Constantine was the one who is now suddenly the you know, Pope of the church or changing everything. When he stopped persecution, it freed the church up to be able to not hide anymore, but to bring their texts out and to really start thinking through and studying these truths and to really counter heresies that had arisen during that persecution period that needed to be countered at the time when they addressed them. So you have heresies that arose about Jesus Christ and about the Trinity that the Council of Nicaea was certainly looking back and addressing. Rightly so, right? I mean, think about it. If we were a church that was under persecution and we had to hide for a long period of time, we had to hide in order to meet. We were truly an underground church. And there was, you know, even just this many of us, or maybe there was a couple of other underground churches here in Chico, and we were hiding out, and we had to be real low profile about the things we said, and we had to hide our Bibles lest they come in. And we were worried that, you know, soldiers or police officers were going to enter in here and arrest us any moment. There wouldn't be a lot of systematic theological studies happening, (laughs) right? When we met and got together... It would be reading what we could 
and just simply worshiping and praising, reading the Bible, praising God. We would be thinking thoughts theologically, but those thoughts would also be tempered with the fact we don't want to get arrested and we don't want to get killed, right? Well, once that ends, all of a sudden there's freedom to study much more deeply and much more richly, which is exactly what happened. But don't misunderstand the fact of what I'm trying to say. What I'm getting at is Trinitarian language and Trinitarian ideology, Trinitarian belief didn't come as a result of some church council. These church councils were freed up now that persecution wasn't happening to really get in and study texts like this and wrestle with what does this mean that the word was God and yet the word was with God? What does that mean? We don't have language like this in the Old Testament. Why all of a sudden in the New Testament do we have language like this? What does this mean for us? Why when we look in the book of Acts in chapter 5 is the Holy Spirit also called God? Are there three gods? No, God is one. The word was God, singular. The Old Testament tells us that the word of God is one, or the, pardon me, that God is one. But yet here we see Jesus is God. We hear him called the Father God. We see the Holy Spirit God. You have all three of these personages being called a one essence, namely God. So you see, we don't get a lot of theological truths that we still hold dear today from some church council. All they did is they looked at what the scripture said and they helped us winnow it down. So when we talk about the Trinity and I say, hey, are you Trinitarian, Mike? You don't have to go, well, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, first John, or John chapter 1. You know, we don't have to go through all that. They helped us understand it in a simple way of articulating it so that we could understand it, even though it's such a big, massive concept and truth. Follow me, everybody? I know this isn't a normal sermon. (laughs) I'm not sorry, though. This is important ground we need to lay and we need to cover in order to go through the Gospel of John, and I think important for you and your growth as well, that we wrestle with, why do we believe the things we do? Well, this is the reason why here. In the beginning... In the beginning, John uses Genesis language. The word, the word was with God and the word was God. Christ was pre-existent. Now, when we see creation taking place, one of the very first things we see is God speaking, right? Let there be and then light. Let there be and then there's an expanse. Let there be and there's water. Let there be and there's light. And let, I mean, lights in the sky, the moon and the sun. Let there be and then there's animals and then there's in the water and they're out of the water and there's plant life. And then finally it culminates in let there be and he creates man. And man is that only creation in his own image. But all the while there's this voice that comes that speaks forth, let there be. And it's Jesus Christ is what John is getting at. That there in that act of creation, creation itself is Trinitarian. Even though that very beginning first phrase of the Bible says, in the beginning, God, singular, created the heavens and the earth. Here, John is revealing to us that in the beginning, God, Trinity, created the heavens and the earth. And God is giving us Pardon me, 
Well, yeah, God. God is giving us through the Apostle John this glorious revelation about the fact that Jesus was there and was an explicit participant in the creation of everything that exists. Now, we're going to get to more of that in chapter 3, or pardon me, in verse 3, chapter 3, in verse 3. But let's move on here. Do I have time? Yes, we'll get through verse 2. Maybe. Praise God. We'll see. He, God, was in the beginning with God. The word we know from the rest of what we look at here, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. This isn't some mere creative force that God is exhibiting. This isn't just simply God saying something and his something is actualizing something that, that didn't exist with the person of Jesus Christ, which is a clunky way of talking about the way like Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That God first created Jesus, he became the word, and then that word was used in order to create everything else. He's explicitly teaching against that, saying that God was there always in the beginning and that God consisted of the word and the word was one of the elements that created and existed everywhere at every place at every time. And it's hard to talk like that, but the fact that Jesus has always pre-existed should give us an exciting hope for where this book is going to go. Because most of the people John is going to assume have already read the Synoptic Gospels. And most of the people that John's writing to have read several other of the epistles in the New Testament. And so John here, he is certainly capable of just, just going on beyond that. But instead of doing that, what he chooses to do in his writing is bring us back to Christ. And so what that means for us really is that Christ is the greatest thing that we can contemplate. Christ is the greatest person that we can know. Jesus is the absolute best of all possible beings. There is no one greater than Jesus. So rather than John going off and some other things, he brings us right back to Jesus Christ. And we need to be brought back to Jesus over and over and over and over, which is why every single Sunday I try to say something along the lines of, may we walk out of these doors knowing Jesus better and loving him more than we did when we came in. Because we can learn a whole lot of things about God and a whole lot of theological truths, and we can parse and, you know, categorize and differentiate between all kinds of ideas and understandings. But at the end of the day, what really matters is Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. The wonderful truth of verse one and two here is that as we relate to God, we're relating to the God that has eternally existed. And this word, this Jesus Christ that we'll, we'll, we'll find that's who he is, but you all know it already. I'm not telling you something new, but the word that exists, this Jesus Christ, is the one with whom we have this relationship as mediator between us and God. Us and the Father. Us and the Holy Spirit. You see, here, 
He was with God and had relationship with God, and we do as well. We have relationship with God, and our relationship with God comes through the word, comes through Jesus Christ himself. And so as we see they relate to one another, we are, in my, I hope, we are calmed in our spirit, knowing that the word who is the savior of all men's souls has saved my soul. And if he has saved my soul and he has this intimate of a relationship with God, therefore I'm reconciled to God. You see? There is peace that comes with knowing God. There is peace that comes through the word of God. There is wholeness that comes through knowing God and knowing the word, knowing Jesus Christ. We can have all confidence that there isn't some bifurcated desire within the Godhead where Jesus is up there just trying to save and the father's up there with his wrath saying, oh, if you don't believe in my son, I'm going to get you, you know, and Jesus is just desperate to save you, which seems like a lot of the way the gospel's preached. Oh, wouldn't you just come to him? Look at all he's done for you. In fact, I just heard it recently portrayed that way. Don't you know all that God has done for you? Now, what are you going to do for him? No, 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 no. God exists. And he exists in relationship with the Son and the Spirit. And in the intertrinitarian dialogues that they've had before time began, they determined who and how they would save. Christ came into the world as this word in order to definitively, assuredly save sinners from God's wrath. And God ordained it. Christ came to secure it. And the Holy Spirit comes and causes us to be born again, who are to be his forever. And so when we come to the word, this brings me great hope and peace and joy because there's no division in the Trinity. They are all united in the relationship they have with each other and therefore with me and with you, beloved. I guess that's as good a place to stop as any. Um, Lord, you are, you are massive. I, I don't even sometimes know how to describe you and I wrestle with my own thoughts of your bigness and your grandeur, Lord. But I know one thing is that you are faithful and true. And as we read, even here in these very opening sentences of your gospel, and we read these massive truths about you and your existence and your deity and your plan and your work, Lord, I ask and I pray, Lord, that you would take our hearts, Lord, and make them soar. May our minds be lifted up. May they not be stunted by whatever growth that we've been up to this point, but instead, may Lord, this study through your gospel be something that expands our understanding and our relationship with you. And as we grow in our understanding of you, Lord, may we more and more and more and more grow in holiness and peace and grace and joy, knowing your mercy that you've given to us, Lord. We love you and we thank you for your rich, rich, rich salvation. In your name we pray, amen.